In this episode, we speak with Jonathan Weiner, co-founder and co-CEO of Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners, also known as SIP. SIP was formed in 2019 and is backed by Alphabet, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, and Stepstone Group as its anchor partners. SIP's mandate is to transform infrastructure by harnessing the power of technology. Jonathan has led three private equity platforms and personally led investments of over $3 billion with a focus on the application of technology to real assets. Previously, Jonathan was head of investments for Alphabet's urban innovation platform. Earlier in his career, Jonathan worked at the DE Shaw Group, where he built a private equity team across venture capital, growth equity, and structured finance. I'm your host, RJ Limba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you for having me. I was doing a little bit of homework and reviewing your background, I thought it fascinating. You have this combination of entrepreneur as well as investor, which is not always the case with our guests on this podcast. We'd love to hear more about the kind of evolution of how you got to where you are today. You started out as more of a software entrepreneur and then went into investing. And I think by hearing this background, that'll set us up for talking about sidewalk infrastructure partners. Yeah. So I started my professional career in the cliched startup way uh, with a few friends dropping out of college to create a software company. This is in the late 90s, early 2000s, which was an enormously rewarding experience. And, you know, really it was the first time I got to see how people build businesses and, and to be on the front lines of that. After we exited that business, I was a very modest exit, but after we exited that business, like many folks, it naturally led me to the investing side. You know, we had venture capitalists who had invested in our firm. We'd become familiar with that business and, and how that works. I mean, in particular, when we were exiting it, we were also exiting to investment organizations. And so we had an opportunity to see how sort of later stage investors also thought and, and worked. And so it was something that sort of stuck with me as an interesting career. And I remember when I was first interviewing with sort of a senior investor, so I was sort of making that transition from being an operator to an investor sort of in the early 2000s. You know, I, I had the opportunity, he's a very senior and experienced investor and I asked him, hey, what do you like most about your job? Or what is it that makes you excited to come in and, and work every day? And, and he talked a lot about you know, he gets to, to meet with some of the most passionate, interesting, knowledgeable people in the world and he gets to allocate capital to try and accelerate and make their ideas happen. And that seemed like such a, an amazing opportunity and such a, a humbling but privileged profession to be in that I jumped into it. And I spent many years as an investor, a private equity investor, first in venture capital and growth equity and, and later more on, on the infrastructure side. And what I will say is it's a wonderful career, but for some people, being a step removed from the execution, like being on a board as opposed to being sort of in the weeds of delivering outcomes and operating, there are different levels at which people operate and find building businesses rewarding. And I, and I tend to be a little bit more hands-on in what I find most rewarding about this business. And so what, what's a little bit unique about SIP, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, is we have this sort of hybrid model where we are not a traditional venture capitalist or infrastructure investor who invests in you know dozens of companies in various different types of minority or control positions. We are business builders. We are a holding company. So we are more hands-on. 
On the other hand, we're not actually the operators, right? We have management teams and we call them innovation platforms where there are management teams that are delivering and executing on the day-to-day. So it's sort of a hybrid somewhere between an operating company and an investment vehicle. And I found it to be an incredibly rewarding way to pursue sort of the same business building that, that I've always done. Yeah, and I imagine it takes a certain individual or a group of individuals to lead this type of effort, meaning there's no defined set maturity date for which your LPs would exit. You potentially can run this into perpetuity, which means probably you have to always be thinking strategically about how to extend and continue to grow each of the projects or companies you work with. That's right. I mean, one of the things that we were very thoughtful about when we started this business was sometimes in in fund structures, you might have a defined term. And depending on where you are in your fund life cycle, that might dictate how and when you have to exit a position. But for the type of businesses that we wanted to build, which are are technology-enabled infrastructure businesses, where you both have to innovate often on, on the digital side, but then also have to build first their kind physical assets. The timelines associated with that can vary dramatically depending on the type of assets that you're building. You know, a road project can spend two years in pre-development long before you, you know, even break ground on it. And so we had to come up with a, a structure that would allow us to pursue those opportunities. And to your point, you know, we have a very strong team, very lucky to work with many of the folks that work as part of our team. They come from all sorts of diverse backgrounds. Some are data scientists and, and operators or former entrepreneurs. Some are former investors, but one of the things that they all have in common is a love for business building. You know, the folks that come from an investing background, they're not the type that are going to get a SIM and read it and put in a bid letter and just sort of be a transaction junkie. I mean, people that come from an operating background, they're not the types that want to write lines of code. They're people who want to think strategically about how to build businesses. You know, we talk a lot about bringing proprietary puzzle pieces or differentiated components to how we build a business. And so a number of different types of backgrounds, but we all share that kind of love of business building. I'd like to go back to D.E. Shaw because it seems like you played an instrumental role there in helping them establish their private capital business and the various parts to it. Folks may know another person that was formerly with D.E. Shaw was Jeff Bezos. Is there something unique about how they hire there and maybe the culture within D.E. Shaw? Yeah, to this day, it's one of the most unique shops on Wall Street that, that I've ever encountered. And I'm very fortunate to have started my career there. They do hire in a particular way. They are less focused, or at least I'm sorry, I'm going to speak about what I knew of the Shaw, which was 20 years ago. So I, I don't know what exactly it's like today, but at least 20 years ago, they were much more focused on aptitude and ability than a particular set of skills. I think they had the belief that if somebody was talented enough, they could pick up the skills that they needed. I would also say it, it tended to be an incredibly warm and intellectual culture when I was there, which really encouraged people to, to think creatively as opposed to other Wall Street shops where it's like, hey, we do it this way and we're, we're trying to execute it in, in this path. And so an incredible place to learn. And as you noted, when I was there, the firm had primarily up until that point been investing in liquid securities of various forms. And they were one of the, the first firms on the street to put in place what was called a side pocket or a pool of their assets that could be invested in, in illiquid strategies. And once that was in place, that sort of part of a working team that helped establish that, the question is, well, what do we do with it? And like, how do we run a differentiated strategy? And so it's just a very special time to be at a a very deeply connected and innovative place where we could ask questions like, how do you run differentiated illiquid investing strategies? And, you know, I guess it's not lost on me that 20 some odd years later, that's what I'm doing. I'm running a highly differentiated illiquid investment strategy through an operating company. It's like, you know, it's very similar to some of the stuff that we thought about way back then. It's super interesting. So you were probably in your maybe mid to late 20s and, and given this mandate to help set up this program, it sounds like you did it across classes. So private equity, venture capital, 
growth equity. Did you immediately have that game plan and start executing on it? How did it actually work? And I presume it actually grew with AUM. Yeah, as part of a team, there was a very senior member of the executive team there who was sort of the chief investment officer for the illiquid strategies. And I was working very closely with him to try and figure out like, what ought we do with this pool of capital? The way we went about doing that was we would engage with the marketplace. We'd talk about very skilled investors. We'd do a set of market mapping about the various different strategies that people were doing. We, we thought a lot about what type of unique angles D.E. Shaw might have relative to sort of a generalist illiquid investing platform. And one of the roles that I had was when we had a thesis, like, hey, maybe we should do energy transactions and try and stand up IPPs and we might have some competitive advantage from our energy trading desk or maybe we could use some of our expertise in transitioning some of our workflows to India, which we were one of the first firms on Wall Street to do that at scale. You know, maybe that means we should have an investment organization that understands that trend at the time of being called offshoring and how one can invest in illiquid companies related to that. So coming up with like these ideas, and there were a bunch of people who were sort of brainstorming them. But then what we would do is we would engage with very senior, experienced MD or general partner level investors at other firms and, and try and recruit them in laterally to run those strategies. And one of the unique things early in my career was, you know, we'd be successful, like so-and-so would come in and run an energy strategy or so-and-so would come in and run the India strategy or, you know, fill in the blank strategy. You know, when they'd first come to Desco, they would show up and often they wouldn't have a team. They wouldn't have junior members of their team to sort of support them in their initial transactions. And obviously, whenever someone comes to a new shop, they're always anxious to establish themselves and get their initial transactions done. And so I'd often spend, you know, the first six, nine months of somebody while they were building up their own team, supporting them, you know, being the associate or the VP or the principal. We, we didn't really have those titles, but, you know, playing that role to support folks. And I have to say it was one of the best learning experiences I could have possibly had for illiquid investing because, you know, this is a mentorship business. You can't like read a book and learn how to do it. And everyone does it differently. And so to spend a bunch of time working with so-and-so who worked at such and such a firm and knew how to do it this way and so-and-so and then do that for like a year and then do it for a year with somebody else. And like, it just forced you to see the diversity of tactics or strategies or underwriting that people use. It was, it was a great education. And, you know, I, I stumbled backwards into it. It was not intentionally. I didn't like set out to go do this. It was an opportunity that happened and that, that landed at the right time in my career, but it was, it was the right way to learn the business. And so fast forward now to SIP and, and not only is it innovative in the way it's set up and its approach, but also that you are really tackling some of like today's most pressing challenges, whether it's in mobility and transportation, whether it's climate, waste and recycling. Let's start with one of the, I guess, verticals, so to speak, which is like, I guess, highest priority. I have three daughters, and if anyone were to ever ask me which was my favorite child, I would tell them I can't possibly choose. And so I, 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 one is not a higher priority than the other. I'm happy to talk about any of them, but just at the, the highest level, just briefly what SIP does, you know, right. our mandate is to apply technology to infrastructure assets to make them more sustainable, more resilient, and more inclusive. And it, it's, it's sort of one of the challenges that we talked about before in terms of timing. The two disciplines of how you build infrastructure assets, which are large, typically physical assets, often in regulated industries that are providing critical services, and how you innovate in technology and, and, and the pace at which you iterate and change digital technologies, it's very hard to think about how you can build a platform that develops infrastructure systems that embed technology deeply into their delivery model. And so we have this thesis that, and, and this comes back actually time times nicely is what we talked about before, what we used to do at Desco. It's like there are a bunch of venture capital, like if you want to do an energy efficiency company, there are a bunch of venture capitalists out there who will write you a series A, a series B, a series C check, energy efficiency company, new mobility company, whatever. Generally speaking, they're going to try and push or want to pursue an asset light model by the nature of their business model, right? They're trying to get 10x or 100x on, on some subset to 
offset the ones that they have to write off. And so they can't be in an asset intensive business and potentially, you know, have that much downside in a single position. On the flip side, so that's like one end of the risk spectrum. On, on the other side, we have what are called poor plus infrastructure firms. And, and this has been a huge success class has grown dramatically in the last call it 15 years when interest rates have been particularly low. And people look to infrastructure, real assets to provide yield replacement for their portfolios. But effectively, what those folks are looking for are really de-risk big physical assets. And what we sort of said is, hey, there's nobody pursuing the opportunity to build development platforms in that missing middle that can take technology out of the lab and build first their kind infrastructure systems. But what I will say, and to your point about the pace and the timing and how we think about fulfilling critical needs in society, these are multi-stakeholder processes. Maybe we'll talk about roads. You asked me to talk about specific platforms. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about our lead road projects. But in order to get a road built, you obviously have public engagement. You need to obviously understand the community you're serving with that road. Obviously, there are departments of transportation, both at the federal level and at the state level, that are going to have deep regulatory frameworks under which you're going to kind of operate. And of course, if you're trying to do something innovative and you're trying to do project deliveries, like how do you embed the technology into a long construction project? And so one of the things that we always look for is we need to be solving a critical need for a community. If we're not, people are not going to partner with us and stick their neck out and take the risk and all of that. And so one of the things we say is if we're going to engage with the public sector or if we're going to engage with the community about building an infrastructure system, if we're not solving one of the top three things that they're worried about, they're probably not going to partner with us. It's just the nature of like the public sector, but it's got to be top of mind. And so when you look at what we do, we're building roads. Our lead road is in Michigan. We'll talk about that in a second. But the governor there, one of her slogans was fix the damn roads. It was like a key priority for her. One of our projects is in California. It's a virtual power plant. When we built that project, and still to this day, the grid was having brownouts in the summer. Like that, that gets people's attention. It's like we have to do something about that. You know, we have our uh, recycling business. So uh, you know, it's starting to come top of mind that like only nine percent of plastics are actually getting recycled, and the rest of them are going into to landfills. And so when you go to communities that are collecting a bunch of plastics from their community and forcing people to separate it, there's a need there to actually do something. But yeah, happy to talk about any of the platforms. I think the one that's perhaps most prominent is the roads platform. It seems like forever ago when people started talking about this digital divide and how there's not enough access to rural communities. Is that still a big problem? Digital divide is definitely um, a significant issue. And I think with the pandemic, we've seen that people's access to work and to education can dramatically be impacted by access to internet. I will say that the digital divide is not just a rural and urban divide. It is true that there are rural communities that it's much harder to get high-speed internet. But even within an urban environment, even here in New York, it's estimated that 20% of communities here don't have access to reliable high-speed internet. And if you think about 5G and wireless in the way that if you think about like cell phones and how new business models evolve once everyone had internet in their pocket, I think what you might see is if some communities have access to very high speed, low latency 5G and other communities don't, it could really exacerbate the digital divide, like even if people have access to a lesser form of internet access. And so we have an entire platform called co focused exactly on this. Again, a critical problem during the pandemic, digital divide really came from the Center for Folks. And they're focused on what's called neutral host small cells, which is without getting into a bunch of technical detail, unless you want to, they're building new types of radio access networks that multiple different carriers can share, which allows us to build more inclusive and ubiquitous wireless networks for the same cost that you might otherwise build, you know, just wireless networks that serve the highest revenue users. So it's definitely a major pressing issue. 
from what I've read, you've raised a significant amount of capital. I believe it was around 800 million that I saw. Do you have a certain pace at which you would like to deploy the capital? Or is it more important that you take your time and pick your projects and partners the correct way? When we think about capital, we think a lot about our capital requirements in sort of a 24-month horizon, like how we deploy capital over the next 24 months. And we're very lucky that we have a great group, a small group, but a great group of investors who, to the extent that we are executing to plan, we don't need to think about a longer horizon. We're able to continue to access capital. That hasn't been a challenge in this business. In terms of how we deploy capital, this is a debate we have all the time. We took 18 months where we did one transaction in the 18 months, which was leaning into an incubation as opposed to a transaction because we looked at the markets and felt they were really frothy. And there was nothing that, that sort of made sense for us to do. And you know we have the flexibility to one, choose not to deploy capital, unlike a fund of a fixed duration that's gonna have to hit a certain window. And we had the flexibility that when we had a very strong thesis, we could incubate a company and sort of insulate ourselves and sort of sell into the market rather than being a price taker in the market. And that's proven to be a good strategy. I think people are very pleased with the fact that those particular 18 months, we weren't buying a bunch of things. But the flip side is it's our business to deploy capital. And, and certainly, like, there's always pressure to try and continue to grow your business. Mm -hmm. You know, I typically ask folks how their investors have been helpful or valuable to them in creating additional value for their portfolio companies. You're kind of like one in the same. You're both CEO, entrepreneur, and investor. Can you tell us a bit about how you do interact with Google, given that your origins were at Google? Yeah, so we were on balance sheet at Google before we spun out and, and, and set up this business. And I have to say that I don't know that we could do our business without them. We invest in so many different types of technologies and you know we have a relatively lean team and when we're going to invest in next generation wireless technologies or next generation data center technology or even like the robots for the recycling platform there are experts throughout that organization who are really world class and who are willing to engage and give us feedback and we are within the family i guess they are a large investor in us but we're an independent company but i think the the willingness to sort of i guess the phrase is be googly is is, is i think the phrase i would say and just be helpful to each other has been tremendous and we've often been able to do strategic sort of arm's length business development deals like we have a, a deal with nest which was really supportive of our vpp platform in california and so there have been opportunities for us to also sort of collaborate in a business sense so, so they've been really valuable but i also want to call out our other founding investor so the ontario teachers pension plan and stepstone and when otpp did this so they are a large Canadian pension plan in the infrastructure world. They were one of the first pension plans to decide to make direct investments in infrastructure. And they, again, have been really innovative in, in a strategy called Teachers Venture Growth Strategy, where they're also starting to make direct investment in disruptive technological plays. But what I would say is they've been incredibly supportive, not just as being very good investors, but in identifying opportunities within their portfolio, for example, within their infrastructure portfolio or trends that they're seeing that really inform where we spend time. And you know, it's a story I like to tell sometimes when we're thinking about our roads platform. And our roads platform is about making smarter roads with like sensors and also communications network to allow vehicles with L2 plus advanced driving systems to take signal from the road. And we get into all the details of why that's an interesting business and, and what it's doing and all that. But there was this board meeting and, you know, at the time Alphabet was on our board and, and Ontario Teachers was on our board as well. And 
the representative from Ontario Teachers kind of asked the representative from Alphabet, like, is this technologically plausible? And the guy, and you know, give him an answer of like, well, here's why it may be or may not be technologically plausible or whatever. Here's what the challenges would be and here's what the opportunity would look like. And the Alphabet people kind of said to the teachers people, it's like, well, you own a bunch of road platforms. Is this something like people would want? And it's like, yeah, that's why they might want it, what they might want it. And it's just this really interesting moment where, again, playing that role of convening people from very different worlds, you know, the infrastructure world and the technology world don't spend a whole lot of time comparing notes. And so our, our boardroom is sometimes a really fascinating opportunity to do that. Excellent. Well, we're coming up on time. I just have two quick final questions. One is I've typically asked people what book has had a profound impact on them. And folks have sometimes offered instead a cause that they like to support and feel strongly about. So maybe you can pick between the two, but then I have another question. I will go for the first one because it's maybe a shorter answer and I think the cause would be a longer answer. But there was a book that came out last year. I was actually just talking about it Friday night with somebody. It was written by a journalist named George Packer called uh, Last Best Hope. It's sort of an analysis of the sort of emerging maybe tribes would be one way of describing the sort of the communities within the United States. And the reason I like that book and had an impact on me, I mean, you can agree or disagree with his fundamental thesis, but it's a great example of how a book can cause you to be empathetic to people or to put yourself in the shoes of somebody who comes from just like a very different worldview. And it's just, you know, sometimes anywhere you live, you know, I live here in Brooklyn or wherever it is, like a lot of people have similar worldviews. And so it's nice to read a book that makes you consider the same problem, but from like a lot of different perspectives. Got it. Last question. Can you tell us about a person that you admire or a person that has had a big influence on you? Bill Belichick. I think it's a really, really interesting person to think about and to think about not just his success, but the day in and day out consistency of his effort, his consistency of attention to detail, his ability to put other people on the field in a way that it makes the most of their talent. I think there's a lot to learn from Bill Belichick. Excellent. Great answer. Well, Jonathan, I want to thank you again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Great. Thank you so much. 